Ebenezer Scrooge. Isn't that a great name for a bad guy? I mean, it doesn't get much better than that. Now, if you know your Bible, you know Ebenezer is actually a biblical term. I don't know where Dickens got Scrooge, but it's a term that we use pretty, pretty substantially around this time of year. If you're not familiar, which I think everybody is, but let's, re, let's review the story. Ebenezer Scrooge is a selfish, miserly old man. He's very Scroogeish, which is interesting to use his name to describe himself. But Ebenezer Scrooge, he is a money man. He's a selfish man. He has a young man, a middle-aged man working for him named Bob Cratchit, who has a family, and he pays Bob very little money. And so one Christmas, Ebenezer is visited by three ghosts, three spirits. These three spirits tell of his past, showing him where he started and when he went astray. His presence, how some people didn't really care that he existed and glad he wasn't there. He also saw the Cratchits and how meager their lifestyle was compared to his own. And then he saw the future. And in the future, he saw, of course, Bob Cratchit's little boy, Tiny Tim, would pass away. He also saw that at his funeral, no one really cared that he was dead. And he was in the ground, and people were happy that he was. So this is the story of Ebenezer Scrooge. It's a story by Charles Dickens. Many of you have probably already watched it or read it this year. If not, you will probably soon. I promise I'll try not to ruin it for you. But that having been said, when we talk about Christmas, you know, one, one author said that Dickens was the man who invented Christmas. Now, I thought that was God, but um, it's an interesting story of Dickens telling, uh, well, the story about how Dickens made this story to kind of match his life. This redemption story, which is ironic because if you read A Christmas Carol, we kind of all want to be like Scrooge at the end of the story. But it's interesting that we still use that word for what people are like when they're not very much like the Scrooge at the end of the story. So is the story of Ebenezer Scrooge the Christmas story? Does it match with the kingdom lifestyle, the kingdom citizenship that we've been talking about now for a few weeks? And the answer is no. I did promise you I'm not going to spoil Christmas, the Christmas carol for you. However, the problem with Dickens' Christmas carol is it doesn't go far enough. It doesn't take Scrooge all the way home. We see Scrooge, he's this selfish hoarding of money. He turns into a person who selfishly gives it away. And you're going, wait a second, that doesn't work. How is it that he's selfishly giving it away? But look at the story. Why does Scrooge give it away? Because he remembers what he used to be like. But more importantly, he sees how people see him right now, and he goes, I don't like that. I want to be thought well of. He looked at the Cratchit family, and he says, you know what? Yeah, they're in squalor. I want to take care of that. And then Tiny Tim, I want to prolong his life, because guess what? No matter what Scrooge does, Tiny Tim is going to die. Hopefully in old age. Is this a true salvation for Scrooge? And the answer is no. This is a, I pulled myself out of the spiral I was in. He saves himself. Yeah, the, the spirits get in there. Maybe it was some bad pizza before dinner. Or maybe they were actual spirits. But however it comes about, Scrooge saves himself. 
through desiring something else of this world. The Bible's picture of how we're to view possessions is way different than that. It is completely different. It's not about take care of the stuff here and make sure you leave a legacy. Instead, it's about are you living in touch with reality? See, Scrooge began to get in touch with reality, in touch with the reality that we are to give our stuff away. It is not ours anyways. But see, Scrooge didn't go far enough. Dickens didn't take him all the way home. All the way home, he would have seen that in order to be a member, a citizen of the kingdom, we have to recognize that there is a king, and that king is our king. So what are we talking about here? Well, we're talking about the fact that starting on this day that we're celebrating here in 20 days, Christmas, which, of course, you all know was not the actual day that Jesus was born. We don't know the actual day. This is the day we've chosen to celebrate. So we're going to do that. Christmas Eve service, and then we're going to have a day after Christmas service. We're going to be all Christmas out. That day was the start of God's kingdom on earth. That's it. That's why the angels came. Glory to God in the highest. Peace on earth and goodwill towards men. Well, that stuff hasn't happened yet, but it started. What did John the Baptist say? He said, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is here. Not that it's coming, it's here. And then Jesus walks up and he says, see, there's your king. So the kingdom is here. The kingdom is inaugurated. It starts at Jesus's birth. It gets paid for at Jesus's death on the cross. And it is currently living in the hearts of every single believer in this room and we have a real good concentration of that right now. And then for all of eternity, the kingdom will be here on earth with Christ as our king on the new heavens and the new earth. That's the picture of where we're going. So that is the reality of the way it's going to be. Now, I can be like most of the people in this world and sit and go, la, 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 la. I don't believe in that reality. There is no king. I am king. But they're going to see when the king shows up a second time, that they're not the king. So this is the reality that Jesus is trying to bring us into touch with. He wants us to see that this is the rest of history. The rest of history is going to be God's kingdom more and more and more until it's complete. And it's in our lives and in our hearts right now. This is the kingdom that we are to inhabit. See, Scrooge did act out parts of the kingdom. He did give away his money. He did give those things away. And we see that all over the place at Christmas time, don't we? We see a lot of sentimentality. We see a lot of good charity towards others. And that's great. That's exactly right. Dickens gets it right. There's a very good ethic about how loosely you should hold on to possessions. He just gets the means and the motive and the reason for it wrong. And so Jesus today wants us to see that. And Christmas is a perfect time to look at this because, yes, is it about giving it all away because it's not mine and it's on loan from God? Or is it about giving it away so that people will think, wow, you give good gifts. Wow, I want to be your friend. Is that really what you give to people that you know? What's our motivation? What's the reality behind it? So here is our big idea. Kingdom citizens live in the reality of God's kingdom. Now, I really struggled with this big picture because I wanted to make it like three sentences, and I just wouldn't do that to you. Um, so here, I'm going to unpack this, and this is going to be what the rest 
of the sermon is going to be about. So in this passage, as we look at the reality of God's kingdom, what I mean is they're in touch with reality. See, most of our world is living in a dreamscape. They're living in, don't even touch reality most of the time. Because the reality is, there is a king, he is reigning and ruling now, and he is coming again to reign more fully. And it is coming whether you like it or not. And the reality is, our world doesn't want anything to do with that. So a kingdom citizen is in touch with reality. And Jesus is going to explain this with three pairs. He's going to talk about two treasures... Because where we look to treasure, where we put our treasure is where our heart will be. He's going to talk about two ways to fix our vision. We can either have good vision, which means we're focused on the things that are really real, or we can have bad vision, which is focused on darkness and the things that aren't real. And then finally, we can have one of two masters, either the one that's the good master that doesn't change, that is coming soon, or the evil master that's constantly changing and we're trying to keep up with and we have to keep doing more and more to be in line with. So those three pairs of twos are what he's going to talk about. See, Jesus recognizes there are rival kingdoms vying for our hearts. Now, when I say rival kingdoms, I don't mean the other kingdoms have a chance. I mean, the, the battle is won, the victory is assured, these kingdoms are fooling themselves. The kingdoms of the world are fooling themselves to think that these little g-gods have a chance against the God who made them. But yet, people's devotion goes to that. And so there is a battle here. So looking at the context of where we've been, we're in chapter 6 of Matthew. If you want to go ahead and turn there, you can. We've been looking at really two rival deities we're starting into the second one today, but the first 16 verses, the first 18 verses have all been about the praise of man. It's all been about, this is what people think of you. It's fame. It's the, it's the little G God of, I want people to think well of me. And remember, we talked about how you fast and you, you make your face look a certain way. So everybody goes, wow, they're spiritual. And you get up and you pray and you lose lots of words and you do it out where everybody can see you. So they go, like this with God. And then when you give, you make sure everybody knows it because they go, look at them. That's a kingdom person. They're giving all their stuff away. When in actuality, all three of those were done for the people and that's the entirety of the reward. So now Jesus changes it from what people think to now our own hearts, where our trust is, where our hope is. Because this entire passage is not about money. It's about what we trust in. It's about what we live for. We have to have the correct kingdom perspective. So let's read the passage together. It'll be up on the screen as well. Starting in verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moths, moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For you'll either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, I just told you a second ago, I said, this is not a sermon about money, and I'm going to prove it to you. That word money there is the Greek word mammon. 
Some of the older translations would use that word there. Our, our current ESV translation has chosen money because I think if you think about it, most people treat money like mammon. And you're going, okay, well, what is mammon? Well, the word mammon means the one in which I trust or the thing in which I trust or the thing that I rely on, the thing that supports me. See, in the Bible, Jesus talks about money. 15% of the time he's talking, he's talking about money, which is more than heaven and hell combined. But see, the problem with this is, is when we look at this and we go, oh, great, it's a money sermon. Oh, okay. But it's not, because that's not what this is really about. Jesus is saying, where do you put your trust? Where do you put your hope? What is your security? What is the thing that you go, I can't lose this, because if I lose this, my life's going to fall apart. And Jesus is saying, that's mammon. Because honestly, what we do, we do this, right? We go, I don't have a problem with money because I don't have any. Or you go, I don't have a problem with money because I spend it on stuff and I love my stuff. Right? See, we, we kind of get this incorrect view. My, my, my kid love another Scrooge. His name is Scrooge McDuck. Scrooge McDuck is the uh, uncle of Donald Duck, and he's a multi-quadrillionaire. And if you remember, if you've ever watched any of the Donald Duck stories, you know that Uncle Scrooge has this big, huge vault full of gold coins and money. And when he gets bored, he goes and he swims in it because he's got so much he can treat it like water. And there's all sorts of times where, where Uncle Scrooge is hugging money and things like that. And when we see this and it says we can't serve God in money, I think some of our default is we go, I'm not like Uncle Scrooge. I mean, man, I think money is probably really dirty and I just... I'll just give it away and get stuff with it. That's all I want to do. I never have enough, so I can't be in love with money. But see, that's not what Jesus is getting at here. Jesus is getting at what do you use as your security? What is your source of trust? And so when we change it to that, all of a sudden this, this command in verse 19, which there's only one command in this passage today, and it is don't treasure the possessions of the world. Do not lay up treasures on earth. Do not do it. He's not saying try it. He says don't do it. And so he uses three analogies we've already talked about. Where is your heart? Where are your eyes? And who do you bow to? So let's look into verse 19 and 20. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. So the first thing we see is, where do we lay up our treasure? Now, what's interesting about this verse, this verse is, if we were to translate it totally literally, it gets confusing, but also kind of sheds light on what Jesus is going after. The word lay up means treasure, right? So literally what Jesus is saying is he's saying, do not treasure for yourself treasures on earth. Instead, treasure for yourself treasures in heaven a lot of treasures being thrown around there and what jesus is saying is he's saying when you when you think about how you're going to protect your stuff is it are you protecting it here on earth so it doesn't go away or are you putting it into the treasury box of heaven are you putting it up there and that word treasure just simply means a thing of value see this is a command and this command is put in a way it's do not and it's a continuous future command this is not a one-time thing i put my treasures up in heaven i'm done it's a continual, continual thing. Notice he also says, where moth and rust destroy. 
corrosion of metals. This word rust is a word that just means destruction or deconstruction of something. It can be affected by animals like rats, or it can be mildew, or it can be a chemical process like rust. Wealth in the ancient world consisted of precious metals and cloth. So some would say, well, so what you're saying is, I just need to buy platinum and polyester, right? Okay, so because these don't rust, and then, you know, polyester, I mean, we can bring back the 70s, right? Okay, so is that what Jesus is saying? No, Jesus is not letting us off the hook here. Because he even says, with, with thieves, he says thieves will come in and steal it. What he's saying is, don't put your stuff, don't put your treasure in things that are temporary. Put them in things that are eternal. Because the temporary can always be taken away. Money loses its value. It can be stolen. It can be worn out. I want to tell you guys a little story. So uh, this is a banknote for the Bank of Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe uses what they called dollars at the time. This is a $10 note. When this first came out, you could buy a loaf of bread with this $10 note. I don't use, I don't use show and tell, but this is too good. I got to not pass it up. So this is a $10 banknote. You'd go into the store, you'd say, I'd like a loaf of bread. The problem was, was that the ruler of the nation of Zimbabwe was in massive amounts of debt. So he started printing up more and more money. And if you remember back to your economics class, I understand if you've blocked it out. I used to teach economics. It's called the dismal science for a reason. When you print up lots of money, your money gets more valuable or less valuable? Less valuable. It turned out that just in the span of four weeks. So if you can imagine something you're buying today and then trying to buy it in January. Let's not imagine. Let's just hope that doesn't happen, right? But if you could imagine four weeks from now not being able to use your $10 note because this is as valuable as a square of toilet paper. And instead, because of 3,000% inflation on a weekly basis, true story, you are now buying your loaf of bread with a $20 billion bill, $20 billion, okay? And I'll leave them up here so you can come up and see them, tell you the truth. This was the bill you have to buy a loaf of bread with. And guess what? Two months later, the president of Zimbabwe goes, we're not using dollars anymore, we're using this new form of currency, so guess how much this is worth? A square of toilet paper, right, okay? So understand that that's what we do when we put our value into possessions. Now, these are some of my most prized possessions because you can teach inflation really easily with those, but they're literally worth nothing. See, this is a common sense argument that Jesus is making. He's saying, don't put your trust and your hope in stuff. It's going to go away. It'll either wear out, it'll get stolen, or worst case scenario, you die and you're not benefited by it at all. It doesn't go with you at all. But there's a word in this, in this first two verses that changes the meaning. It's the word but. The word but is a great word in the Bible. Look what it says. But treasure for yourself treasures in heaven. Why? Because they don't go away. This is the good news of these first two verses. He's saying there is a treasure that will not go away where it will not rust, it will not be destroyed, it will not get eaten, and it will not get stolen. It is yours. So there's, there's danger in storing up here on earth, but there's no danger in storing up in heaven, in the kingdom of heaven. So some would ask, what are these treasures? What are the things that are we are to treasure on this earth? Well, 
We need to use a broad definition here because there are lots and lots of places in the Bible where it says treasure these things or here's what your reward would look like. But here are some from the context and where we're at. Jesus has said our righteous deeds are treasures. Our suffering for Christ's sake is a treasure. Our forgiving of others, our generous gifts to the poor. Ultimately, what Jesus is saying is whatever draws us into reality of the current kingdom is a treasure because it helps us begin treasuring the king and the kingdom. Whatever brings others into connection with the true king is a treasure. So now some would say, well, but so you're saying what you're saying here is Jesus is saying, do all these things, and we're just like sending the treasures ahead, and we'll enjoy them someday in heaven. Like I'll get a bigger house in heaven, get an extra room because of the niceness I'm doing. Is that what Jesus is talking about here? And the answer is yes and no. No, in the fact that it is not a direct relationship. But yes, in the fact that right here and right now, you can experience the treasures of God. Because this is not a future verse. Remember what I started out with with John the Baptist? He didn't say the kingdom of heaven is almost here. The kingdom of heaven will arrive when you die. It says the kingdom of heaven is here. It's now. This is not about sending it off before into the future it's about experiencing it now because the treasure that we get is we get to have that relationship with the king and that relationship with the king makes everything in our world change what it is it's no longer a tool that i'm going to use to get ahead in this world it is now a tool by which i get to know my king that much better jesus's point is that having the treasure of god is far more valuable than any treasure this world can offer Let me show you an example of this from the Bible. Dietrich Bonhoeffer had said, earthly goods are to be used, not collected. And it reminded me of the Israelites in the wilderness. So the Israelites are walking around in the wilderness, and they need food. So God gives them food. And it rains down from heaven. It's little white wafers. And they named it, what is this? Which is the word manna. And manna is the stuff that just came down from heaven that they would make into a paste and make bread and other delicious things out of it. I wonder if they could make donuts, but that's just me. (laughs) They would make these, right? And they would use it. But the problem was the Israelites would go, well, you know, we got it today. What if we don't get it tomorrow? So they would gather up more than they needed and they would sock it away. And the next day they'd go in there like, hey, we're going to have double portion. And they'd go in and it was crawling with worms. It was rancid. And they would go, oh my gosh, that's not good. What are we going to do? We can't, we can't collect manna on Sabbath, which is Saturday. We can't do that. What are we going to do? And God goes, get double on Friday. And they're like, yeah, we tried that already. Okay, Lord, we'll do what you say. And then come Saturday, they pull out their Saturday portion, and guess what? No worms, no rot. Now, how does that work? Well, it's called manna, which is what is this? Well, I'll tell you what it is. It's the bread from heaven. It's God's bread. But see, here's the thing, is the Israelites misunderstood this. They thought that the manna was what was taking care of them, when in actuality, it was the God who gave them the manna that was taking care of them. That's why the manna works on Saturday, but not if you hoard it up for Monday, or not if you hoard it up for the next day. And see, just like the manna in the wilderness, our daily bread, everything we need will be covered in worms. It'll be unusable if we use it for ourselves, if we hoard it up. Here's what Bonhoeffer said. In the same way the disciple must receive 
his portion from God every day. If he stores it up as a permanent possession, he spoils not only the gift, but himself as well. For he sets his heart on his accumulated wealth and makes it a barrier between him and God. Because where your treasure is, there is your trust, your security, your consolation, your God. Hoarding God's good gifts is idolatry. Those are some powerful words to think about. That when we take those gifts that God gives us and we go, mine, 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 and we hold on to them, we are idolizing those things. We are turning them into idols that we worship. Now somebody's probably thinking, wait a sec, hold on. Are you saying, Jesus is saying we can't save? I mean, that seems irresponsible. I know, as a dad, I want to provide for my kids. As a matter of fact, the Bible requires me to care for my family to do all that I can. So you're saying, I can't save up? No, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Because that would contradict elsewhere in the Bible. A good example is Proverbs 6, 6 through 8. When the, pro- when the, the proverb promotes how the ant plans ahead. And there's other places as well. When Jesus tells his disciples to plan ahead, to think about what you're taking with you. That's planning ahead. It's not going, oh, you can't ever plan ahead. We'll just trust the Lord. Instead, it's going, plan ahead. That's good. But why are you doing it? Are you doing it because you don't trust the Lord? Are you doing it because you're worried that tomorrow he's not going to provide? What's your rationale for it? So some will also go, well, wait, okay. But we can have all these possessions, but I have to be all doom and gloom and not enjoy them, right? So if God gives me a good job and I get all this extra money, I have to pretend that I hate my 75-inch television. I have to pretend that I hate indoor plumbing. I have to not enjoy air conditioning and any of these other perks that we have. That's not what the Bible says as well. 1 Timothy chapter 6, 17 says that the, the rich get their money. Why? To turn around and praise the Lord and enjoy him through it. That's the purpose. See, the purpose of everything that we have been given is twofold. One is to give it away, and the other is to bring others into contact with the kingdom. Imagine if we as Christians in the West began looking at our possessions, not as who can get the most, instead of how can I bring other people into this kingdom with these possessions. See, material possessions are not a sign that God loves you more than someone else. It's a sign that God's got more work for you to do with those possessions. So selfish accumulation of goods is what Jesus is after here. Now some of you may say, okay, wait, wait a sec. We're we're talking material, which is this world, and then we've got spiritual over here. These two are not the same thing. They They don't affect each other. What I do nine to five, Monday through Friday, is not the same as what I believe in my heart. Well, see, unfortunately, you're going against what the Son of God is going to say because your Son of God is really wise, and he knew that that was going to jump into our hearts. So look at what verse 21 says. And this is Jesus saying, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is saying, There is no two realms. There's Jesus' realm, and then there's all the people in Jesus' realm that think they're not there. There's no material and there's spiritual. No, it's one realm. It's all his, the entire universe. He says, mine. And that's what he's saying here. Because when you treasure something, your heart pursues it. The Amplified Version says, your, the word heart means your wishes, your desire, and what you put your life on. Charles Spurgeon once told a story 
of a minister who had just preached a sermon, and afterwards he passed the offering plate. Another minister came up and said, you really should preach to their hearts. Then you would get more money. To which the first preacher said, yeah, you're right, because that's where they keep their money. See, when we put our hearts on money, it becomes our actual God. When we put our hearts on possessions, it becomes our God. See, every single person on earth is religious. There is not a single person on earth who is not. Now, you may say, well, they don't belong to a religion. You're right. They don't belong to a formalized religion where everybody gets together and they all worship the same thing. But every single person on earth is worshiping something. They're, they're saying, this is the most important thing to me, and I'm going to circle my life around that thing. It can be possessions. It can be prestige. It can be fame. It can be family. It can be all sorts of great gifts that God has given us. But every single one of us is religious because what we love becomes what we are and what we worship. So what is our ultimate concern? What is it that drives us each and every day? Is it the membership in the kingdom and bringing more into it? Or is it this other kingdom, this, this mirage that the world is pursuing? One author writes, it's not the fact that a man has riches that keeps him out of the kingdom of heaven. It's the fact that the riches have him. See, a rich person can be a Christian, but there are grave dangers. And compared to the rest of the world, we are the richest group of people on the planet. See, God doesn't mind us having possessions, but he does forbid possessions having us. A.W. Tozer once wrote, There can be no doubt that possessive clinging to things is one of the most harmful habits in the Christian life. Because it's so natural in the world, it's rarely recognized for how evil it is, but its outworkings are tragic. See, when we take something and we honor it above God, we begin worshiping that thing. Maybe it's honor. I, wanna, I want prestige, so now ambition becomes my driving force. I want stuff, so greed becomes my driving force. I want pleasure, so hedonism becomes my driving force. See, this, this, this error that we fall into is we fall into it that because I have stuff, that must mean that God is blessing me. Instead, I have stuff, which means God is blessing me with the chance to give it away, to show others the kingdom. See, real, spiritual, real spirituality is not in gathering wealth, but being delivered from it. See, verse 21 here is the end of all of chapter 6 so far that we've covered. Verses 1 through 21. And we've covered all sorts of stuff in there. We've seen the Lord's Prayer. We've seen teachings on, on tithing. I'm sorry, uh, giving. We've seen teaching on fasting. But there's something that we miss when we read through this. Kind of like when there's a whole thing of gold and we miss all of the silver that's surrounding it. And what we miss here is that in these passages, in these 21 verses, 10 separate times... Jesus talks about where our treasure is and what our reward is. We see it in verses 1, 2, 4, 5, 6, 16, 18, 19, 20, and 21. What he's saying these 10 times is he's saying, I have a better treasure for you. I have a better reward for you. And unlike the world's treasure, it is sure. It does not go away. Not only does it not go away, and not only is it sure, it's staggering. It is staggering in how great the reward is. And it only gets better each time. Think about with money. You, you buy something, and what's the first thing that happens? You nick it, you scratch it, or, or something goes wrong with it. And even then, six years from now, you've got to buy a replacement. 
The kingdom of God works exactly backwards of that. And the treasure we get now is just a taste, and it keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And before you know it, the entire universe is all one treasure that you get to experience because you're a son or daughter of the king. See, that's the treasure that we see here. So here's the kingdom reality. The kingdom reality is a staggering and sure treasure. A staggering and sure treasure. Nothing can touch it. It is bigger than we can imagine. So this is Jesus' first reality. He says, the kingdom reality is a staggering and sure treasure. Now let's look at verses 22 through 23 for his second analogy. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. So what we see here is we see where do we fix our eyes? Where is our vision? What are we looking toward? Notice Jesus says, the eye is. This is a declaration. He's not making an argument. He's saying, this is what it is. This is how it works. He says, if your eye is healthy, if your eye is good, if your eye is whole, it's a good giving eye. You know, the whole body benefits from the eyes, doesn't it? Tells us where to walk. Tells us how to walk. And any parent in the room knows when you're trying to keep the lights off, you don't want to wake the kids up with the lights, somehow that one piece of a Lego ends up right in the middle of the walkway. And your eyes can't tell you to not step on it, and you do, and it's like a razor blade. See, our eyes help us to see reality. A healthy eye is valuable. A bad eye is not. Now, the humans, have we have adapted so that people that are blind can do amazing things. Jesus is not saying, well, this is for blind people in reality. He's talking about your spiritual eyes. He's saying there's nothing worse than having eyesight that does not see the way the universe works. The bad eye, the evil eye, the greedy eye. The point here is that your eye is going to decide where your treasure is. If my eyes are on the kingdom, I'm going to see things rightly. If my eyes are on this world, I'm going to see things wrongly. And when I do, my eyes go bad or my eyes go good. In the Bible, the word eye is equivalent to heart. We see this in Psalm 119, verse 10 and 18 and 148, where they're used interchangeably. Because see, when we are looking at something, we tend to move towards that. Anyone in here who has ever taught someone how to drive, it's a scary situation. I haven't yet experienced it, but in couple years, I'm going to experience it. And one of the things I remember when my mom was teaching me how to drive was she said, don't look at anything but the road. And I'm like, why do you have all these windows then, right? <laughs> why, why not look at something? I mean, because when you're driving the car and you look over there, the car goes there, right? And that's a scary thing. And my mom's pushing the brake on the dri- passenger side and it's not working because there isn't one. See, that's the way we do with everything. Where our eyes are focused, that's where we go. Where our love is focused, where our treasure is, that's where we go. And Jesus is saying, your eyes need to be right. Your eyes need to be focused on the right thing. Because see, a bad eye is going to look at good things and say they're bad. Isn't that the picture of our world? Our world can say, that is something that is evil. And we look at it and we go, that's right out of the mouth of Jesus. That's good. But the world says, no, no, that's bad. 
So when we get our eyes on Christ, when our eyes are on the kingdom, when our eyes and our heart are focused on that, we can see reality for what it is and see good for what it is and bad for what it is. A healthy eye sees the world right. An unhealthy eye can't see it. So the kingdom reality here is seeing reality as it is, seeing the really real. Reality is now in touch with my heart. My heart can see reality. So first, Jesus says, don't treasure things on earth because your treasure is where your heart's going to be. Your heart's going to be on earth. Then he says, fix your eyes on the coming kingdom, not on the things of this earth. Because when your eyes are fixed on the kingdom, you have healthy eyes. So he says, healthy heart, healthy eyes. And now he moves into what we worship. See, the tendency right here is for us to go, yeah, but I'm not like this. This this whole thing is not describing me. I've learned to balance. I've learned to juggle. I can juggle, you know, my possessions in God. And and we kind of got this little routine going. And Jesus finishes because, again, he's wise. He knows what we're coming at him with. He finishes with, no one can serve two masters. For he'll either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and possessions and mammon and money. So whom are you going to serve? That, that final phrase, you cannot serve God and be enslaved to stuff. So 19 and 20, we're, we're all about, not about our, what is our ultimate treasure now? 24 is about our ultimate service, our ultimate worship. Who are you going to serve? The words love and hate there are a little different than how we use those words. They're, 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 they mean choose or not choose. It's just a simple, I choose this, but I don't choose that. See, someone who divides their allegiance between God and possessions has already given it to possessions. See, God is not a God who shares. God is a God who says, I am God. Look at what Isaiah 42, 8 says. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. When we try to share our loyalties with idols, the idols win. See, God says, it's either me or the idols. You can't have them both. Many different times in the history of Israel, we see where Israel tried to have it both ways. And, you know, Solomon was a good picture of that, where he's got his temple to God, but then he's got all these other temples and goes down in flames. So who is the servant here? Is it God or is it possessions? Because if you are mastered by mammon, you will either ignore God or worse, you'll make him a bellhop for your possessions. You'll go to God and you'll say, I really need this to go along with this that I already have. But if you're mastered by God, your possessions now become the servant of you and your God. See, this this serving language here is all dealing with slave being owned by a master. This is not being employed. This is, I fully belong to the God of the universe. This is not the slavery that we had in the pre-Civil War South. This is going back all the way to ancient Rome, where the slavery where you would sell yourself into it so that you could be protected and cared for by a master. This was not oppression. This was not subjugation. That did happen, but that's not what Jesus is talking about here. This is saying, you know what? I can't take care of myself. I'm selling myself to you, the good master. You care for me. I will work for you. You care for me. That's the slave that we see here. 
See, we have a tendency to, to think that this world is our home. Therefore, we've got to do everything we can to make it great. But in reality, this world is not our home. Christ is our home. This is how you can hear Paul say things like, to live is Christ, to die is gain. It's all the more gain when we treasure up our treasures in heaven. Spurgeon again writes, God and the world will never agree. However much we may attempt it, we shall never be able to serve both. You can live for this world or you can live for the next, but to do both is impossible. You know, it's interesting. I remember when I was teaching uh, the founding fathers and talking about the Constitution. At the Constitutional Convention, there were all sorts of discussions about how to make our country. And one of them, which was laughed out loud, they laughed out loud at how bad it was, was they said, well, let's not have one president. Let's have like seven. Let's have seven guys in charge, and, and then they'll be the ones to be in charge and make decisions, and, and that'll work out great. See, the thing is, there's a reason why countries only have one king. Because you can't do two. Because the kings are going to not agree. Or you're going to play one off of the other and end up serving neither. We can't have two commanders and chiefs. We can't have two masters. We can't have two gods. See, Jesus is saying, I want to save you from high treason against the one true king. Listen to me. Don't go that route. We cannot work for God and moonlight for another God. Jesus is not saying this will be hard. He's not saying this is going to be really tough, so don't do it. He's saying, no, this is impossible. You cannot serve God and man, mammon. You cannot do both at the same time. But see, the world's God loves that we would spin our, spin our wheels trying to do both because we're doing the work of the God of this world. So the question is, are we willing to be atheists in the eyes of the world? Our world is worshiping gods aplenty. Are we willing to be the real atheists and worship the one true God that our world has nothing in mind for, that has no use for? So who owns you? See, God doesn't despise riches. In fact, he gives them to us so that we can use them. God gave us this world as a gift. It's not wrong to enjoy it, but it is wrong to hoard it up and think that this is all there is. You cannot serve God in money, but you can serve God with your money. So the final reality we see, the final kingdom reality, is that we are under the reign of the good and true king. We are under the reign of the good and true king. See, there's two options here. It's really simple. You have the world's way, store up your treasures, unsure, they might last, they might not, but either way you're going to die and they're going to somebody else. Having an unhealthy vision that sees everything wrong, and having a master who's constantly changing how you meet his needs. Or, on the other side, you can have the true king. The sure, unmoving treasures that will not go away and that are staggering. You can have a healthy vision that's in touch with reality. And you can have a good master who does not change. So what does this look like? Well, ultimately it looks like this. No one can be simultaneously devoted to God and money, God and possessions. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, many of us try to compromise in these areas. Two jobs become available. The weightiest factor for the job is which one gives me more money, which one gives me more prestige, which one will give me a chance to move up to another job, instead of looking at it and going, which one gives me the option to serve the Lord better? 
Or we make a needless move to a bigger house or a bigger car. Why? Because so-and-so has one. Because there's lots of new options on it. Because it would look good. I just need more space for my stuff. Instead of, how can I serve the kingdom? How can I bring people into touch with the kingdom? One of the, one of the advice I give to students, I've spoken at many graduations. One of the advice I gave to my students was, don't worry about what college you go to. Instead, worry about what college has a church by it that you can be a part of that church or a ministry that you can be in. The colleges, yeah, they're, 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 they're what they are. But if you go to a college and base your decision on where you're going to spend the next four years, on what you're going to get from that degree and not how you're going to grow in your knowledge of the Lord while you're there, you're going to fail. And it's why so many students walk away. Because ultimately, you're, they're saying, what matters is my treasure on earth, not my treasure in heaven. So come into contact. Come into relationship with reality. If you're a member of the kingdom, if you're a member of God's kingdom that is broken into this world, we're going to celebrate our citizenship here in just a second with communion. If you're here and you're like, this doesn't make any sense, this is all a bunch of religious gobbledygook, let me tell you that this is the kingdom that is coming. It's coming whether you like it or not. It's coming whether you believe it or not. So ask yourself, have I actually thought about this? Have I actually asked the Lord if this is real? So as we celebrate our citizenship up here, if you're not a citizen, you can become one today. There's no entrance exam. There's no tests. You don't have to be positive or negative with whatever virus is out there. You can be a member of this community by simply giving your heart to Christ right now. Actually, it's not even giving. It's just surrendering. It's giving up and saying, I'm tired of being king. I want you to be the king because you are the king.